0: Welcome to Turf Dudes, show number 38. Behind the curtain, there are a lot of people in our industry who are often not recognized, but are vital to our success. Each year, Harold's recognizes a Sales Support Professional of the Year during the Harold's Annual Sales Meeting. To be nominated, an individual must perform well in their respective areas while also representing Harold's core values, to serve, honor, and glorify God, to take care of people, and to grow a financially sound and stable company. And our four pillars of humility, gratitude, intentionality, and accountability. Through 2021, our industry experienced unprecedented supply chain and manufacturing challenges. Throughout the year, members of the Harrells team went above and beyond to ensure Harrells remained in a position to serve and supply our customers. For this, Jim Moon, Director of Procurement and Compliance, Marcus Hood, Silicaga plant manager, Don Prince, a Lakeland plant manager, and Tim Simonson, our Avon Park site manager, were collectively recognized as the 2021 Harold Sales Support Professionals of the Year. Today, we're joined by Jim Moon for a wide-ranging discussion on the fertilizer supply chain, particularly how Harolds is working to navigate uncharted supply chain waters, and how owning Polyon is a vital part of our fortune so far. Before we get started, don't miss out on our virtual lawn care seminar coming up on February 24th. During the seminar, we will discuss with the lawn care operator how an efficient Polyon fertility program has benefited their business model, and Paul Giordano and myself Will present on different types of fertilizer technologies. They're placing in an annual program and disease and insect control strategies for lawn care operators. A link to register for the seminar will be included in the show notes, and you can reach out to your Herald's representative for more information. My name is Dr. Jeff Atkinson, and I'm joined as always by Dr. Raymond Snyder and Dr. Paul Giordano. Raymond, Paul, and I serve as Directors of Agronomy for Herald's. In the spirit of individuals who often go unrecognized, Turf Dudes is produced by Brandon Clark. We hope our conversation with Jim Moon will provide perspective into the work behind the scenes, which goes on every day, and we can't say thank you enough for. It. Enjoy the show. Uh, why don't we get started then? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Because when you look at folks within Herald's that are, are visible, that you hear the name of every day, um, yeah. unfortunately jim moon isn't the name that our customers hear every day but you're pretty not pretty you're a very integral part of their experience with heralds every yeah. day so watch us yeah. a little bit about about your background how you got into heralds how you got into procurement and how you got to sure. kind of where you are today
1: sure um so 20 uh, 20 years ago uh this year i guess um i'm a i got a finance background so i came into heralds as I came in as the controller. Um, we were obviously much smaller than There was no CFO, no Gary Rust. But, um, and within, I don't know, a couple of years, I was uh, ready to explore more about Harold's business and what we did. I didn't know anything. I came from a grocery store background, so I didn't know anything about fertilizer. So um about two years into my career the lakeland operations position opened. we back then we called it a general manager of lakeland operations and so that job came open and i asked to get it and got it and so for six or seven years i ran the lakeland operation which to we as we know it today is uh where the corporate office is but where the blending plan is the Warehousing for Florida distribution and then all the transportation element of that. So I ran that for about seven or eight years. And then, so obviously learned a lot about fertilizer over that time and kind of what we did as a whole. You know, six or seven years in, that's when we kind of started exploding and expanding across the, you know, Southeast and up into the Midwest and Northeast. And so we needed some more infrastructure. To kind of cover all of the business growth that we were having. So, um, I, uh, so we kind of, kind of broke up some areas that we weren't covering uh, specifically. So one of those was procurement and procurement is kind of a general term, but obviously raw material procurement. Um, you know, we had a component of chemistry procurement uh equipment procurement any kind of any kind of national purchasing that we could do to kind of buy our you know put our buying power together um so that was a piece and then we had the other piece we were missing was compliance so somehow i got thrown into procurement and compliance um So, I mean, I, you know, from a raw material side, I'd been dealing with that, you know, over that time. So I was comfortable with that and even the equipment purchasing and things like that. But compliance was obviously something I didn't know anything about. Well, we realized it didn't take very long that compliance was not my forte. So uh, that's when kind of Sandy came in and we kind of built a compliance department. So I kind of moved completely over to the procurement side And one of the things that I was doing during that time was whether it was Purcell, Agrium or Coke, I was kind of the lead contact for Polyon purchasing, too. So it made sense to kind of fit me into that role and just kind of take on the procurement side. You know, I have another component Uh, that I do today even is kind of the financial analysis of operations of our operations as a whole. So just because of my finance background. So um, but anyway, that's kind of where I how I got to where I am today. Obviously, it's grown. We've expanded across the U.S. and now we're international. So there's a lot more to it now. But that's kind of how I transitioned into the role I'm in today. So
0: I mean, I guess as a follow up to that, yeah, our customers and our reps. The thing we take it for granted that you know we go. We have the ability with our custom mix software to make a blend of you know, hundreds of different components in there, and, and we trust yeah. that that inventory is there and it just happens to be there. But that's yeah. like that's part of your your role is you're you're the man behind the curtain that makes all that magic happen. Yeah. Make sure that it's all all there on a day in day out basis.
1: Yeah, correct. So uh, kind of with with that, I manage or try to manage the costs position that we're in on materials on granular you know, raw material and then i'll update formulation on a weekly basis to kind of give guys the most current costing when they're out there trying to sell uh mixes or whatever so that's a you know i over i kind of take that for granted because i've done that for so long that it's just part of my routine but you know it is important especially in in the last couple of years, where we've seen costs go where they've gone, it's it's really important for us to make sure we kind of stay ahead of that. and we'll probably talk about that more later. but um, that that's that is something I've taken for granted. but it is it is something that is is really important to the guys to have the most current information possible when they're out there trying to sell
2: so so Jim, for our customers listening and even for for, for me and and probably a lot of the folks within Harrells. I mean, Obviously this is probably going to be one of the the hotter topics that we've done in a, a podcast on in recent memory just based on what's going on in the world and so help help some of us understand you know when we talk about the globalization of what it is that we do and and sourcing yeah. of materials you know what countries are the major sources of nitrogen phosphorus potassium and and how is it within your role that you're managing those those major sources across the globe
1: yeah good question so i thought about this uh wednesday when i was kind of looking at this stuff and it's really i kind of look at it more and i know this is kind of broad to say but more of a continent-based kind of situation right so you've got uh north america south america europe and asia if you look at those four continents all four con- all four of those continents countries within those continents are all manufacturing producing some form of fertilizer so it, It really is a global market that we're we're talking about and i kind of explain it in it's kind of a circular effect right so we sell product gets exported out of the us into china uh russia south america asia then same thing asian countries export out to north america south america europe Europe does the same thing. So it's all a big circle of everybody kind of, depending on the material, all of it's just kind of a circular pattern of where everybody's kind of sending product, either keeping it internally within the country or the continent or they're exporting it out. So it's a big circle effect. So when we see the position we're in today, it's all because globally different things are happening that are creating either shortages in material or, you know, for example, there's, there's U S manufacturers that are looking at themselves and going, well, we can get higher prices. If we export it to South America, they're going to pay more for of potash than customers in the U S. So their decision is, do we, do we send it down to South America and, and get more dollar, more bang for our buck, or do we keep it within North America? And so it's just a big circular effect that causes fluctuation in market, whether it be supply, price, whatever it's, it really is from a fertilizer market standpoint, it is really global. So anything that happens, and more specifically, if you want to break it down to country China, India, Brazil, Russia, US, those are probably the, the, Four or five biggest users of fertilizer in in the world so any one of those creates a need for for more supply or less supply that's what drives cost or price is for example if india wants x million tons of uh, metric tons of urea that's what they're projecting they need but then they say well no, we only need 75 percent of that well, that frees up 25 percent of the urea globally that can go somewhere else, which drives supply into those other markets to help mitigate pricing going up or down or whatever. So that's so it really is a global function of and, and I've had to learn that over the last several years of I've kind of paid attention to what happens in the U.S., but it really is the impact in other countries that does affect us. So I really had to change my thinking over the last two or three years and look at the market globally versus just kind of paying attention to what's happening in North America. I don't know if that answers the question, but that's that's kind of the thought process I'm taking today anyway, because sure. it, it definitely impacts us for sure. So it sounds obviously
2: that, you know, there's a lot of factors at play when it comes to the U.S. situation. Yeah, you know. Are are we well diversified as a country in terms of where we're sourcing our raw materials as a whole? And I know that's a nuanced question that you can probably break yeah. that down by company. But, you yeah. know, where do you find the major pain points coming from, at least in today's marketplace?
1: Yeah, so good question. So it does. Uh, one of the things that that when I was going through some of the questions you guys had was it's hard to generalize an answer because it does depend on material you know whether it's the nitrogen source or a phosphate source or a potash source it does depend on if you're looking specifically at one of those sources so for example on sop there are suppliers globally for sulfate of potash but historically most u.s companies are buying sop from somebody in the u.s right so so when you look at that, there's there's limited sources because anybody importing SOP is really not doing that unless there's a surplus in some other market in, around the world. So on the flip side, urea, everybody supplies urea or everybody supplies a nitrogen source globally. So there's much more nitrogen sourcing coming into the U.S. than maybe potash. So it does depend on uh the particular source that you're looking or the material you're looking for so when we look at potash you know i put that kind of at the low end of the amount of sourcing you can get whereas we can find nitrogen sources there's more people importing nitrogen, some kind of nitrogen form whether it be urea or ammonium sulfate or whatever it is there's more people bringing that into the u.s it's historically cheaper um there's more manufacturing plants around the world of nitrogen sources. So um, so there just gives us a little bit better opportunity there. So it does, it, it, it's gotta be specific to the material when we're looking at, you know, kind of, when we see challenges of trying to find a source or trying to find a material, we have to look at where the options are. You know, I, I'll use the last year and a half or so, Sulfate of potash has been the biggest challenge that we've had. In the US, there's two suppliers that have historically been able to cover the market. And both of them have struggled in, especially in 2021, early 2020, but most of 2021, they struggled getting staying up with the demand that was out there. So um, that's been a struggle. Whereas urea. We haven't, you know, other than the pricing of urea where it's at today, there, it hasn't been a problem sourcing it. It's just, you know, we're having to, we're having the challenge of figuring out what to do with the, the price where it's at today. But anyway, that's my point is, is it just depends. You got to break it down to the material and what you're looking for and figuring out where, where the sources are and, and how readily available they are coming into the U.S.
0: I mean, in the case of like the sulfate of potash, is it an issue of um, there's not enough, where whatever the source is internationally, wherever that mine is, is there not, or wherever it's being produced, is are there not enough workers producing it, or is it yeah. a case of a boat getting stuck in the Suez Canal type of a, uh, or yeah, so so
1: specifically to
0: potash, what happened was, um, and you'll probably hear this a few times
1: when I say it, but what happened was prior to. 2000, late 2019, we didn't, they would have manufacturing problems and there would be times where they would be down for a bit, but they would catch back up and we would be fine. But what happened was obviously COVID was good for our market, right? Whether it be the golf market or the nursery market, or even especially ag market, whatever it is, that was, it was good for us. I mean, it's not good for the country, right? But, or for the world, but it's for our business, it was good. I mean, we have to, we have to say that. So, what happened was potash, especially sulfate of potash, wasn't ready for you know end of 2020 and starting into 2021. It wasn't ready for the demand that it that occurred. So they've just not been able to catch up. the two The two main suppliers that come into the U.S. neither one of them have been able to catch up with the demand. So, and, and matter of fact, one of the suppliers was sending product to Canada and Mexico because they could get a higher yield on that. And so between those two things, not being able to meet demand and sending sulfate of potash to other countries, it created a problem for us, for the US. So the demand uh, has created a difficult situation, both with supply and price for that matter. I mean. The reason that prices are where they are is because supply is limited. And I mean, it's basic economics. Supply is limited and demand is high. So producers can drive that price up because whatever supply they have, everybody wants it. There's more demand than there is supply. So they can yield a higher price. Uh, As long as that demand continues and they're not catching up on the supply side, they can continue to get a higher yield on their on their material. So, um, it's really been the COVID issue has created where we're at today. Now, over you know over the course of the last ten or fifteen years, we've seen a particular material. You know, I remember back in two thousand eight, phosphate was at pricing levels they're at today because they were because manufacturing was struggling they were struggling to produce product but that was a very short-term problem and eventually within a few months they caught up on inventory and the price went back down but i haven't seen anything in 20 years how pricing is sustained over the course of you know a year so and that's all because of it's all because of demand the worldwide demand is just so high that that supply is not there to cover so, I, I, that, what you're saying, Jim, is obviously
2: at the high level. At the it, it's far upstream. It's the biggest issue that's occurring in terms of supply and demand. I think we can all understand that. And then yep. help me and help others understand as you get further down that supply chain, the additional bottlenecks that have occurred. You know, yep. even at the individual company level, from you know trucking and yep. bags and pallets and you know ships getting held on docks yep. because of labor shortages so yep. you take that large issue and then you compound it with further downstream bottlenecks that i think have created this craziness of 2021 going into 2022
1: and yep. maybe speak on that a little bit so when we when we talk about it kind of in general terms right we have got we've got domestic suppliers and then we've got we've got other suppliers that import right so two things that happen there A lot of material comes from China, right? So China historically imports or exports it into the U.S., has done that pretty regularly for the last 10 or 15 years. Well, between container congestion, between just the backlog of being able to get ships over and the cost to ship it from China or Europe or South America, the cost has tripled in 2021 to import product into the US. Same thing going out, right? I mean, US exporting out to other countries, the same thing's happened. So the cost of transportation or to ship product between countries is tripled in the last year. So, what does that tell you? Well, China's you know China's kind of its own anomaly. But when you look at everybody else that's importing into the U.S., they're saying, "Well, it costs me triple to bring it into the U.S. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep the product somewhere closer where the demand is high, just like it is in the U.S., and it costs me less to ship it there." So that's created the that's part of the bottleneck or the the pricing concerns that are there. Because transportation costs are high, trucking costs are high. I mean, it, it you know what it costs to ship a truck from you know one of our locations in Silicaga to Auburn, Mass is three times what it cost a year ago or a year and a half ago. So all transportation costs are up as well. Any kind of packaging costs, anything that comes in a bulk bag, the packaging cost is way up. So all of that. Has created where we're at today. So um, there's a lot of lot of different factors that have affected it. But for sure, just from a pure raw material standpoint, transportation costs is probably one B of supply being one A and transportation cost being one B is where where the you know kind of where the problem is and where we're at today. Fascinating. It really is. Um
2: so i mean in, in terms of your job responsibilities you know yeah. let's let's kind of go back to in a normal setting normal background yeah. how far in advance typically would would we as as a company start to seek raw materials um you know again outside of what we're doing yeah. today yeah.
1: okay so um well in, in, in today in my world i really have two two separate functions right we've got the 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 two blending plants is where most of all of our fertilizers made. And then you got the coatings plant, right, where we make polyam. So it's really two separate things. From a purchasing standpoint, they're similar but different. On the blending side, when we look at uh, nitrogen phosphate potash, there's a limitation because of storage. Um, we don't have a lot of storage in either one of those facilities, so we can't point Example, we can't buy 800 tons of potash, of potash at one time because we got no place to put it, right? We have to buy more on a daily, weekly basis versus looking out over the quarter and saying, okay, we want, we can bring in 800 tons of of potash today. So what we do on the blending side is on all of the major sources of MP or K, I give all the suppliers that we use, whether it be one supplier for one source or multiple suppliers for a source i give them a 12-month rolling forecast right meaning okay this is what we're looking at over the next 12 months so that kind of gives them some visibility of what we're going to purchase over the next 12 months and then from there we kind of break it down to the quarter so each quarter it's more of a binding forecast where i say okay we're going to buy x number of tons for this quarter and then the the guys at the blending plants will actually submit POs and get those into the to the suppliers. And so then they have hard orders. And then from there, those guys can just pull off of the, those POs as much as they need to. Um, on the coatings plant side, it's a little different because everything's driven on Polyon production and what we're producing and what we need. So I have to kind of go a little farther out from a purchasing standpoint and say, I do the same thing on the, on the poly, on the coating plant side. I give all the suppliers a a 12 month forecast, but I kind of purchase, I go ahead and purchase product a little farther out because we can store more at at HCS and um, we've got a lot more rail car uh, storage at HCS. So I, even if, even if we can't put it in a bulk bay, I can keep it in the rail car for a certain amount of time until we can unload it. So a little bit different. So in general, we're purchasing or or committing to purchase 12 months out, right? Um, Lead times, uh, you know, that's specific. So most of the N, P or K sources for the blending plants have storage facilities somewhere, meaning in Florida, or in the southeast somewhere so they have product available all the time so lead time is pretty quick right i mean if, if we need a truckload of muriate potash the, uh, the guys can send a truck over there it gets loaded up and bring it back it's two or three days turnaround now rail cars it's a little different rail cars depending on where the product's coming from it's anywhere from four to six week lead time just for the rail car transit so we got to plan 6 to 8 weeks out for if we're going to purchase rail cars because we got to you know we got to expect there's going to be delays in in the railroad or whatever. So has
0: there ahead. been the same delays with rail as there has been with truck? I mean we hear about trucking all the time, trucking trucking trucking, but has rail been impacted the same way? Yeah, the biggest the
1: biggest challenge in in, in rail is um repetitive theme, but they've had a lot of covid issues so they've had their labor they've had a lot of labor shortage so when that happens it just cars sit sit in a certain terminal somewhere until they can get enough staff to start moving those trains somewhere so yeah it's i would say you know i'll, I'll use the example when we buy urea we buy barges of urea for hcs so the all the barges come into new orleans and then we load rail cars up we load rail cars up from that barge so it goes from New Orleans to Chicago. under normal times. The lead time for that rail car is 10 days. Um, I've seen it, you know, when we first took over HCS and, and I was ordering urea out of New Orleans, it would take 10 days for a rail car to get up there. We're looking at 20 to 25 days now. So what that does for me is, okay, now I've got to order more barges to make sure I have enough barges down there that I unload a barge, have that those rail cars start shipping, and then right after that barge gets unloaded, I turn around and unload another barge to make sure that I keep, have a continuous flow of urea just coming into HCS plant all the time because I'm seeing a week and a half to two-week delay on those cars coming in. So it has been a challenge rail-wise, and even on the blending plant side, those guys have historically gotten a rail car in four weeks and it's taken eight weeks to get a rail car. So they have to fill in with trucks or whatever to make sure they have enough material until those rail cars land. So yeah, I mean, rail car, the, the rail situation is just as bad as trucking is. And I don't want to say bad because we're it's it's not like we're not getting product. It's just, you know, we just have to plan better. We have to plan just better. Just the way that you plan. It. Correct, correct.
3: I mean, Jim this is Raymond uh, you yeah. mentioned a couple times polyon and HCS and yep. and, I, and I don't know that you know when we started in the early 2000s that we'd ever envisioned actually owning polyon I mean it was something yeah. we always hoped I think one day that would occur yeah and uh, you know we'd always had good partners it,
2: well here it goes there's it uh, like some squealing or something
1: they, uh, oh, my. my lovely wife. Put a candle burning in the bathroom, <laughs> and it and it fell. Oh and no! It, it's like on fire in the bathroom. It's, it was real small, so I got it, but it's, oh, <laughs> it's Sorry, about that. Fire. Sorry about that. Wow, that's yeah, bolt, right. yeah, that's the that's the pleasures of being home. <laughs> you know, working from home. So good, th- good thing you I'm are. I it was good. I'm home. If I wasn't home, then it, we, the house would be on fire when I got home. So no kidding. Anyway, that's sorry awesome. about that. Jeez. Well,
2: lady, ladies and gentlemen, we had our first uh, house fire on the podcast here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's
3: right. Very, very uh, symbolic of the overall theme associated. Exactly. With that. That's <laughs> right. Raw exactly right.
1: Gosh. Exactly right. <laughs> um, I, hey, I, I, I forgot the question, Raymond. So, okay, I remember. So, um, so obviously, we control our own destiny. So that's to for me. One of, the, one, one of the things that was always a challenge was when somebody else controlled Polyon production, we had a, we had our specific needs, um, and we, we expressed those needs, we forecasted those needs, we um, tried to have some control over what was happening at the Polyon plant. But ultimately, somebody else controlled what happened. So um, now for me, especially from a production operation standpoint, um, if we have, if we have uh, a need for a poly on urea that we're, we're blowing through inventory on that, but we're running something else, we can stop, turn around, go run that product, make sure we get that inventory built back up. So it gives us a lot of control over what we can get out to, to the to the blending plants or to our customers, whatever, versus, you know, trying to work with somebody else who controlled it to get what we needed. So from my perspective, it just gives us a lot more flexibility to, to maneuver around and where the trends are going and where the demand is and kind of work through it. Now, obviously, um, we all know 2021, we've, because of demand of Polyon, which is great, we've had to continuously flip back and forth, try to make sure we cover all the inventory needs that we have, which, you know, I've looked, I've told people this uh, several times in the last few months, If somebody else had owned Polyon in 2021, we would have never been as successful as we were in 2021 because we would have not had the ability to adjust and make different choices to to meet the certain situations that we were in. So um, that's really been the biggest thing that we control everything that we need to do to make sure we get product out as, as best we can, you know, on the on a higher higher level, um, we've got our own R and D department that is always looking at new technologies, new types of poly oil that's used in the or MDIs or any kind of chemistry that goes into making polyon. It, 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 whether it's a better technology or better technology and a cheaper cost. You know, that's so we've got all that flexibility to be able to to make different decisions within the polyon picture. And that's that's definitely something that um, will help us going forward. And like I said, looking back at 2021, we wouldn't have been able to do what we did if, if we didn't control and own it. So um, I think that answers your question. But
3: yeah, um, absolutely. And I was going to follow up with could you imagine having gone through the past year not owning the technology and you you answered that question because no
1: no no not at all we would not have we would not have we would not have been able because we we had to many times many days many weeks we had to we had to go back and forth switch switch products uh, uh, move products to a different line to make sure we covered, those you know so we had a lot of flexibility to do whatever we needed to do and, you know in my experience with the previous uh, three owners i guess that have had it before us um you know well number one the previous owner had a competing product right that they were also producing there so um you know, where was their allegiance to Polyon? I mean, they, there's some I mean, obviously they wanted to sell Polyon but they had another competing product that they were pushing as well so, you know, how much control did we really have when we you know, when it came down to it and we needing something over something they might need on that competing product so now it's, you know, obviously given us the flexibility where we don't we don't have that problem and we can we can do what we need to do so.
0: Thank you Well, I know I speak for the entire team of Heralds and entire team in the field and all of our customers. And um, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, we don't hear the name Jim Moon in the field as often as we should. But uh, we appreciate the work that you have done. Every one of the operations have done to help keep heralds afloat and help keep our customers afloat and keep them serviced to the level that you guys were able to keep them serviced. I, I know that there are maybe a couple of examples here and there of folks not being able to get a product uh, right exact day that they wanted to. But um, I think overall, more than anything else, you know, you guys were able to perform at a level under a a year that had more unusual circumstances than um, than anybody else in the industry. And that's a credit to uh, the efforts. I mean, everything we talked about today, all the different moving parts and all the things that you're juggling that you're able to keep in the air. And so uh, kudos to you and the entire operations team. And we're thankful for what you guys do every day. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I remember
3: that. from my earliest days, it was check with Moon. One thing <laughs> to stay consistent. It's still now twenty years later. Yeah. check with Moon. Yeah. So we appreciate
1: yeah. you, Jim Moon. Well, yeah. I don't have all the answers, but um, uh, one of the things that uh, one of the things that we've been able to do is understand. And I say, I say, we. It, it's the operations team, especially now that we own Polyon. And we, we, we understand, and this is across the board of all operations team, uh, we understand the needs of our sales guys a lot better, I think than maybe five or 10 years ago. Uh, so by owning Polyon, by being able to facilitate the trickle down from the Polyon plant to both the blending plants, we're much more able to react and adapt to different needs of the sales group and the customer, their customers, um, better than we did five, five or ten years ago. And in really, a lot of it has to do with obviously owning Polyon. But even the blending plants—if you take Polyon out of that, um, those guys are now working together to meet all of. You know, it when when and Raymond Raymond will remember this. I mean, we used to look at Lakeland as the blending plant that serviced Florida. Silicaga was the blending plant that serviced everybody else. Well, now we run we run as much not as much product, but we run a lot of product in Silicaga that's coming back down into Florida because if if certain times during the year the Lakeland plant is at full capacity then we can shift some some production into the Silicaga plant to get to meet some more needs down in Florida and vice versa. So that we've done a great job of putting all that together and kind of tying all three blending plants, you know, the two blending plants and the polyam plant together to work cohesively to cover everybody. So that's that's one of the things that we've done really good job of over the last four or five years.
0: So we appreciate your efforts and appreciate your time today.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: That wraps up our interview with Jim Moon. A sincere thank you to Jim for his time. This show would not be possible without the willingness and cooperation of folks across our industry willing to share their stories with us. Turf Dudes exists to communicate important research findings and turf management trends to turfgrass managers as part of Harold's effort to grow a better world. If you enjoy the show, we want your feedback. If you have a topic you'd like for us to address or a person you'd like to hear from, please send it to us at TurfDudes@Harolds.com. That's T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S at heralds.com. While you're at it, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes, YouTube Music, or SoundCloud. We'll see you next time.